I'm telling you, the kids said they saw a guy climb through a window in the old house. So? If he's dumb enough to go in there, he'll get what he deserves. Yeah, but we can't leave him in there. We gotta try and destroy this thing again. Every year we burn it down or blow it up or exercise it and it just keeps coming back. I wish my hair would do that. Oh, before you go open that door, let's go over the list and make sure you have everything. Let's see, um, crucifix, wolfsbane, um, stakes, silver bullets Andrew somehow made in shop class. Super soaker full of holy water? Check. Let's do this. Yeah, it's pretty dim. Like a candle or something. I hear someone talking. Is there more than one person in here? Come on, hun. By now you know there are tons of things in here. He looks like a monk? Holy crap. I bet he's a Satan worshiper or something. We gotta stop this before he makes this place even worse. Hello, listeners. It's your old friend PJ Frightful here, coming to you live from the house Okay, of- buddy. Break it up. You're trespass. Hey, I know you. You know this guy? Yeah, he's that guy on Ryan's Midnight Podcasting Hour. The one that tells the creepy story. DJ... PJ Frightful, as in podcast jockey. Right, right. So why are you here? <sighs> Ever since he had that kid, Daly can't seem to find the time to come down and unlock the old abandoned radio station for me. So, I heard there was a nice, atmospheric place to do some recording here in Kentucky. And what better place to spin my tales of the macabre than the legendary House of Mystery? This isn't the House of Mystery. No, this is the House of Frankenstein. But I thought the House of Mystery was in Kentucky. It is. About ten miles that way. You've got the wrong house. What? Wait. House of Franklin? What kind of crappy name is that? Well, our last name is Franklin, and and look, you can't stay here. Just move along. Fine. I didn't like this place anyway. Too drafty. Kane will probably have a room to rent at the House of Mystery. Maybe Abel's room, if he's killed him lately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just get moving. And take this short box of Night Force with you. Gee, squatters. Happens every year. At least it wasn't as bad as that one chick who thought this was the dark mansion of forbidden love. She kept running up and down the lane in her nightgown every night, screaming. Got real annoying real quick. Hey, at least she was hot. Ow! You've been hanging around Shag too much. Do you, Baron Frankenstein, take this woman to be your bride? Do you promise to haunt her with old horror movies, toys, and comics? Yes, I want friend. Woman. Friend. And you, Baroness, do you take this man beast to be your lawfully bound husband? Do you promise to endure hours of unimaginable torture as he rambles about monster movies and long dead actors? Close enough. Then by the power invested in me by Count Alucard, I now pronounce you supermates. supermates. You may bite or kiss the bride. That hurts. You hit me way too hard. Oh, you told me to. <laughs> no, I didn't. It says. 
Cindy punches Chris, but you didn't have to, like, hit me that hard. Sh you told me to. Hello, and welcome to episode 74 of Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. I'm Chris. And I'm Cindy. And welcome to part one of our fourth annual Halloween extravaganza, The House of Frankenstein. In case you're new to the show, for the next four episodes, Cindy and I will review and discuss a classic horror film and a related comic featuring our favorite superheroes battling a similar threat. We start in September because we love Halloween so much. Two episodes just won't do. In fact, for the next two months, we're going back to our old format just so we can cram as many movies in as possible and so we can drive ourselves insane. Uh-huh, yeah. You know, it's <laughs> not like we don't have anything else going on. <laughs> um, this year, we thought we'd kick things off with a bona fide classic. We've covered a lot of the original Universal horror films on the show, but there is one monster we have yet to discuss. The Creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> A favorite among monster kids and especially monster collectors, the creature has one of the most iconic designs in all of Hollywood history. Its elaborate suit design helped to inspire future horrors such as the Xenomorphs and the Alien franchise and the Predator. And the taunt tale of suspense and horror on the water in a claustrophobic boat no doubt helped to inspire Jaws, also from Universal 20 years later. Moreover, the creature is the last of the great Universal monsters, coming over 10 years after the ongoing franchises were shut down when Universal became Universal International, and a good six years after Abbott and Costello got the band back together for one more romp. The creature is generally thought to have bridged the gap between the science-based horrors that dominated the 50s and the classic monsters of the 30s and 40s. So without further ado, let's put on our 3D glasses and scuba gear and head back to the Black Lagoon. Creature from the Black Lagoon was released March 5th, 1954, which, like just about every movie we've ever reviewed on here, nowhere near Halloween. <laughs> no, not anywhere near, but it is the year that my parents got married. Oh, well, there you in go. In December of that year. Oh, there you go. Uh, the movie was directed by Jack Arnold from an idea by William Allen, story by Maurice Zim, screenplay by Harry Essex and Arthur Ross. Uh, for the cast, we have Richard Carlson as David Reed, Julie Adams as Kay Lawrence, and she was credited as Julia Adams at this time. Richard Denning as Mark Williams. Antonio Moreno as Carl Maya. Nestor Pava as Lucas. Whit Bissell as Dr. Thompson. Bernier Gauzier as Z. And Henry A. Escalante as Chico. And even though they go criminally uncredited, Ben Chapman as the creature on land and Rico Browning as the creature in the underwater scene. about the history of Earth and the evolution of its creatures, we meet geologist Carl Maia leading an expedition to the upper reaches of the Amazon River. He discovers a strange claw-like hand embedded in a cliff dating back to the Devonian era. Carl heads back to his institute in Brazil to organize a party to dig the rest of the skeleton out. Unbeknownst to him and the men he leaves behind in camp, a similar living claw emerges from the river and then retreats. At the Maritime Biological Institute in Brazil, Carl is happy to find his old student, ichthyologist David Reed, and his fiancée and fellow scientist, Kay Lawrence, whose team are visiting from California, studying lungfish. I was hoping you experts on marine life could make some identification. I've never seen anything like this. Look at the webbing between the fingers, David. Yeah. 
Maybe we'll know more about it after I find the rest of the skeleton. Boy, I'd sure like to be with you when you do. So would I. What about your boss? You think you would be interested? Williams? <laughs> There's a chance of any publicity. Just try and keep him away. Now, be fair, David. Publicity brings endowments. And without money, there isn't any research. That's right. If it weren't for Dr. Williams going on digging up the dough, we wouldn't be down here. David and Kay are fascinated by Carl's findings, as is their boss, scientist and entrepreneur Mark Williams, who, seeing the recognition and profit such a find will bring to their own institute, immediately agrees to fund Carl's expedition. Along with their colleague, Dr. Thompson, they set off to the Amazon. Meanwhile, at Carl's camp, the creature attacks and murders the men that Carl left behind. As the expedition nears the camp, Mark isn't too impressed with their mode of transportation. An old fishing boat, the Rita, piloted by a colorful captain named Lucas. The team is horrified to find Carl's men dead and attribute it to a jungle animal like a jaguar. After digging at the cliff for eight days, they find no further evidence of the skeleton. David suggests that the cliff may have fallen into the river and that the remnants will be at the tributary's end. Lucas informs them that this body of water is known as the Black Lagoon. But we know nothing about this lagoon. I can tell you something about this place. My boys call it the Black Lagoon, the paradise. <laughs> Only they say nobody has ever come back to prove it. <laughs> We'll do it. The Rita makes its way down the river and through a narrow passageway into the Black Lagoon, while Mark stares jealously at David and Kay and demonstrates his spear gun to Lucas. David and Mark scuba dive below and find the rock samples they were searching for, unaware they were being watched by the living creature they are hoping to discover. While the men study their rocks, Kay goes out for a swim. Her shapely form catches the eye of the gill man who swims beneath her accompanying her every movement in a sort of underwater ballet. The creature reaches for her, but she is called back toward the boat by David, who warns her of the danger of swimming in such unknown waters. Duh. Then the boat rocks violently. Something large is caught in the net, and that something, unknown to them, is the creature. It nearly snaps the bow, but breaks free, leaving only a single claw behind. With evidence that their unknown species still exists today, David and Mark head back to the lagoon. David with his underwater camera, Mark with his spear gun. Lucas, put that over the side for me, will you? Whatever the species might be, if you let it alone, it won't bother you. Yeah, maybe. But if you're wrong, this harpoon will correct any mistakes. Mark, we're out for photographs for study, not trophies. This, this thing alive and in its natural habitat is valuable to us. Well, why settle for a photo when we can get the real thing? You don't sound like a scientist. You sound like some big game hunter out for the kill. You may not be back home, David, but you're still working for me. Their search doesn't take long. They spot the creature and Mark manages to shoot at it in the lower back with a harpoon. Back on the boat, David chastises Mark's bloodlust. David believes he caught it on his camera, but finds only seaweed instead. The group debates the existence of such a being and then hears the cries of one of the boat hands. They run up top to find Z babbling about his brother Chico being taken overboard by a demon. What happened? Chico! What happened? Chico! Chico was gone. My brother was dragged down into the water by a demon. Come on, everybody, look around, quick! 
Demon, eh? Well, that's no more far-fetched than your gill, man. There are many strange legends in the Amazon. Even I, Lucas, have heard the legend of a man-fish. Over here! Quickly! The team finds the creature's wet footprints on the boat, but no sign of Chico. They set up a cage on the boat, with David hoping to capture it alive, while Kay wonders if the creature is out for revenge for Mark's attack. David believes it does have the ability to remember. Lucas suggests the use of a native drug called Rotinol, used to catch fish. The team creates weighted tablets of the powder, so it will make its way down to the lagoon's depths. Mark's dangerous obsession with bringing the creature back, dead or alive, continues to grow as the two drop the drug into the water via rowboat. Come on. You talking to me, Mark, or something out there? Both, David. Oh, they won't believe it back home, none of them. I wouldn't have believed it myself. Sitting out here waiting for some monster to appear. That's why we've got to take him. Why won't they believe, Mark? Because we deal with known quantities, with knowledge we've accumulated up to now. We've just begun to learn about the water and its secrets. Just as we've only touched on outer space. We don't entirely rule out the possibility that there might be some form of life on another planet. Then why not some entirely different form of life in a world we already know is inhabited by millions of living creatures? We must have the proof. That night, as they all stand on deck, the creature tries to come aboard once more but is frightened by a hanging gas lantern. With their searchlights, they follow him to a nearby grotto, getting their first good look at him. Believing him drugged, David and Mark swim out to the grotto. They follow him into a large cave and back out onto the beach, where he heads towards Kay. V tries to defend her, but dies like his brother. The gill man picks up Kay, but succumbs to the drug. The team takes him back to the Rita and puts him in their makeshift bamboo cave. When he left, I don't know. Depends on whether he can survive both the Rotenone and being out of the water so long. You sound as though you feel sorry for him. Why? He could have killed you just as easily. But he didn't. It doesn't make any difference now. The point is, he won't do any more killing. Well, anytime you're ready, Lucas, we can start back. Mark, we're not finished here yet. We've got to make a study of that grotto. We've got to collect photographs. I've data. got all the proof I need. Get going, Lucas. Mark, we're not going anywhere until we've finished our work. you feel any better. Oh, uh, Doctor, would you mind staying behind and keep an eye on our prize? Don't be long, David. You better get some rest. While David and Mark go off to study the creature's habitat, Thompson and Kay stand guard. Thompson notes the love triangle Kay has found herself in, but his psychoanalysis is cut short by the creature's escape. The gill man's large, clawed hands ravage Thompson's face before the scientist breaks a lantern over his skull. His head afire, the creature leaps overboard. The bandaged and seriously injured Thompson is treated by his colleagues, who are all demoralized by the death and destruction wrought by the creature and their expedition. All except for Mark. How is he? The infection doesn't set in, he may pull through. The fool. It wouldn't have happened if he hadn't been careless. There's no one to blame. Four men dead so far. If he dies, what a useless waste of experience and ability. Nobody meant it to happen, David. 
Mark, I'm for getting out of this lagoon just as fast as we can. Without taking what we came for? We didn't come here to fight with monsters. We're not equipped for it. We came here to find fossils. Later, later, we can come back with a properly equipped expedition. Be reasonable. Reasonable? Oh, what else could I expect? But you, Carl, it means as much to you. You're driving yourself too hard, and the rest of us along with you. We are staying until we get him. Or until somebody else gets killed. No, we're not. Lucas? We're getting out of here just as fast as we can. Okay. I'll make the decisions around here. Oh, but you are wrong, Mr. Williams. On the water, the Capitão makes the decisions. We will do as you say. You'll listen to me. When David tells Lucas to take off, Mark attempts to stop him. Lucas reminds him that he is the captain at knife point. You wish to say something, mister? Huh? <sighs> Dr. Mayo, will you please to pull up the anchor? I will start the engine. Their journey home is cut short when they find they can't leave the lagoon. The creature has dammed up the entrance with large, heavy logs. They attempt to use the winch to lift the logs, but the creature detaches the hooks before they can succeed. David plans to dive down and ensure the connection, but Mark has other plans. He wants to use himself as bait to capture the creature. I'm going in with you. Mark. All we're interested in right now is getting the entrance to this lagoon cleared. I'll be the bait for him. Oh, Mark, get out of my way. Let it come from me, David. It'll give you a chance to get at him. You're crazy. Crazy to want to bring back the biggest find anyone's ever made? Oh, you don't know what this can mean, David, to all of us. Mark, you're not going with me. I am. When David refuses, Mark attacks him, but David fights back, leaving Mark temporarily winded. Oh! While David attempts to hook up the winch line, the creature approaches. Mark appears with spear gun in hand and takes after him. He manages to hit him again, this time in his front abdomen. Pulling out the spear, an angry creature goes after Mark, bustling him down into the depths and ultimately tearing loose his air hose with his mouth. David comes to his colleague's rescue, but it's too late. Mark's lifeless body floats to the surface. Feel trapped, the team begins to lose hope. An offhand remark by Lucas gives David an idea. It's the only way. We've got to clear this inlet. Hey, that fellow down there, you think maybe he's a mosquito you can shoo away? We've got to take that chance. Oh, sure. What's an expedition without two martyrs at least? Kay, Kay, I'm doing the only thing we can do. If we all just sit here, we'll, we'll all end up as Mark did. Wait a minute, something you just said about his not being a mosquito. Maybe we won't have to fight him on his own terms after all. How much rote known have we got left? Oh, not enough. Enough to use in a spray gun? What? Oh, you mean to kill like a mosquito, eh? It worked for us before. And it took plenty of time. All we want is to make him groggy. Just keep him away long enough so I can get a cable around that tree. Well, what do we use for the spray gun? One of the air bottles. A solution of rotenone released under pressure. That ought to do the trick. Some trick. Come on. While making a spray gun for Rodenell, the creature once again comes aboard, reaching his clawed hand over Dr. Thompson's body. Lucas's gun scares him off, but not for long. While David is trying once again to secure the winch cable, he returns. But David manages to spray him with the drug twice. With the cable attached, they remove the logs out of their way. But their victory is short-lived. 
The groggy but resilient creature comes on board again, grabs Kay, and dives into the lagoon. The Gill Man takes his prize to his cavern home, with David closely behind. Searching the tunnels, David finds Kay laid out on a rock, but the creature emerges from a nearby pool and attacks David. Before he can get his claws around him, David manages to stab him in the chest, but even injured, the creature is strong enough to lift David over his head. The speedy arrival of Lucas and Carl saves the intrepid scientist, as their gunshots stagger the Gill Man. A sympathetic David tells them to cease their fire and let him go. creature stumbles back to the lagoon's edge, with the four remaining party members following guardedly behind. Gasping for water, he shambles into the lagoon, where his increasingly lifeless body sinks into the depths from which he came. I know we've watched this several times, but what do you think of this movie overall? I like it, and I mean, honestly, especially in the 1950s, it one of the things I like about it is she is not a weak woman. You right. know, that's one thing I like about it. And the whole thing is, is that you actually have somebody in the film in the form of David, who is sympathetic. He's like, hey, we're in his territory. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it seems more of a thinking picture. Right, yeah. I think I think that's one thing that, that helps it hold it helps it hold up over time is that it is it is a smart film. You know, it, it's it's uh, you know the the later Universal Monster movies, which will one of them which we'll cover <laughs> uh, this time on House of Frankenstein they were getting increasingly more geared toward the kid matinee crowd. Uh-huh. Uh, this movie actually does stop and make you think. I mean, there's plenty of suspense and, and action and a really cool-looking monster to keep your interest, but they take the time to flesh the characters out mm-hmm. and their motivations and the message of, you know, basically don't screw around with Mother Nature, don't, you know, don't go around poking around and, and if you do, then be respectful and, you know. Well, and I mean, the opening of it, you almost, I mean, I don't know about you, but with the opening of it, it was almost like you were back in high school science getting ready to watch a student film. Right, yeah. You know, it's, you know, giving yeah. you all this explanation and exposition and stuff. About evolution and, yeah, it, it's it's definitely, it has that science, you know, feel yes. of, the, of, the, of the 50s, yeah. It, it's, you know, and a lot, of, a lot of movies were like that, but I think at that time, but I think this one... Uh, you know, one reason it, it you know, like I said, it, it, it holds up because there's some care put into it. It's not, you know, it's got a really solid cast. Uh, it's, it's, got, uh, it's got a tight, very super tight script, and uh, it just works well. We'll get into more of that as, as we go along. Uh, you know, I think it's one of those near-perfect films because there's not one part where you groan or roll your eyes you know, maybe Kay is a little screechy. And and, and and the lack of common sense when she goes swimming. Right. I'm sorry. I'm like, what? What? Are you kidding? Especially after, I mean, that's an iconic scene, and we'll we'll get to that in detail right. later. Right, and I mean, that's the reason they did it, so there wouldn't be 
any anybody else except the creature in K in the lagoon. I get that. Yeah. But I wish there had been any other setup. Well, what Lucas, uh, you know, Lucas tells them, it, you know, when they're when they're traveling there, he's like, "There's catfish, the nine feet long, and the killers." You know, yeah. I mean, you know, it, you know, it's it's like, why would you go? I mean, a, there's a catfish out there bigger than you that'll eat you. You yes. know, let alone the creature. Well, you know, and the fact, I mean, you think about it. These guys, when they're in the water, they have knives and a spear gun, and you know, she goes out there in her pretty little white swimsuit. And I'm like, are you kidding, lady? Yeah, but you know, despite the fact that you know she's a little, you know, she's of course she screams a lot. I mean, but it's a fifties, it's a horror movie. There's you know, the scream queen type type vibe going on. But she is a scientist. Yeah, you know, she is a professional. With a career, and her career, her career comes up when she's talking to Doctor Thompson. You know, basically, he's like, you know, you found yourself in this this situation. Once you admit that you're in love, it'll take care of itself. You know, and and she's like, well, it's not that simple because Mark's helped me with my career. So basically, you get kind of get the impression that she is not she's in love with david they're engaged I'm, I'm assuming they're engaged everything i read said they were fiance although they never really state that they uh carl just says are you guys married yet and they're like no we're you know we're you know uh not yet and and uh but you almost get the impression that she's kind of uh you know keeping david at bay just a little because she feels like she owes mark the idea that he might succeed with her which is kind of weird no i don't, you, you don't get that was not my take as okay. Here's my take on that. Okay. I think what happened is Mark is a little bit older than her. Mm -hmm. She is a brilliant woman. Mm -hmm. And at that time, you know, he used her intelligence. And if you notice when she's talking to Thompson, you get the impression that he has taken credit for some of the things that she came up with. Right. But she let it go because he was helping her with her career and things like that. She looked at it more of a mentor relationship. Yeah. And she doesn't want to hurt his feelings. Well, yeah, that's what I was getting at. Where, but whereas Mark was like, hey, I might get me a little, and she's she's smart, too. I can use her brain and her body. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, that's what, I was, that's what I was trying to say. I just didn't say it very well. But, so, yeah. But I, don't, I think that's what it is. Not that she is falsely encouraging Mark. Oh, she's not encouraging him. No. But I think that's, you know, she's like... She feels beholden to him for helping her with his career, for helping her with her career. Right. Yeah. That's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. Um, you know, I do like that she is not just like David's girlfriend that just tags along, right, or whatever. You know, she is a scientist. That's so I like. That's a, that's a that's a step in the right direction for female characters. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we're ever going to find, a, especially back you know, pre-60s, 70s, we're ever going to find a, a female heroine like Lady Jane Ainsley from The Return of the Vampire, who was the super, you know, she was basically the female Van Helsing that was super, you know, that you could go off and make a whole other movie series about her. You know, she was a rare, you know, blip on the, you know, like the uh, female agency just like went up, whoom, and spiked on the graph and it goes back down, you know, right. with her. You, know? you probably really don't see it again until you get Ripley and Aliens. Right, well, well true. I mean, you know. Yeah, that's yeah, that's good. good point. Uh, the design of the creature is one of the best in cinema, hands down. Mm -hmm. After many attempts, including a sleek alien-looking version, 
based on the Oscar statue. Which I thought was so weird once you showed me. I'm like, oh, yeah, it, it, it is. Yeah, yeah. And, and the final body with a smoother cone-shaped head. The iconic creature was designed by Millicent Patrick and sculpted by Chris Mueller under the direction of Bud Westmore. And Patrick was a very attractive, stylish lady who can be found in many promotional photos sketching the monster and posing with the costume parts. Uh-huh. So, I mean, so there, there's your theme. I mean, the, a woman designed the creature from the Black, Black Lagoon. Lagoon yeah. So, you know, how cool is that? Uh, Bud Westmore, who had replaced the famous Universal makeup wizard, Jack P. Pierce, who had created, you know, Frankenstein monster and the Wolfman and just pretty much every Universal monster of the previous decades. He was unceremoniously fired a decade earlier. And Westmore was said to often take credit for the creature's design, despite the many photos and memories of others involved in the project. So, so basically, he was the mark in that relationship. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Pretty much. I so, mean, you know, you think about that. Yeah. The design also mirrored the movie. Yeah, when you think about it, that's true. That's good. Good point. Yeah. There are also promo shots of Rico Browning, who played the underwater creature, meeting Julie Adams in the early streamlined suit and of them testing the different heads on the finished suit. So they're out there. If you can just Google and look them up. The idea for the creature actually originated from a very unlikely source on the set of no less than Citizen Kane. And you can hear Rob Kelly's ears perk up just then. <laughs> creature producer William Allen had began his Hollywood career as an actor. He just happened to appear in what many consider the greatest movie of all time, which would be Citizen Kane, playing the reporter unraveling the mystery of Charles Foster Kane's life. On the set of Citizen Kane, Alan heard of the legend of an Amazon man-fish hybrid from Mexican cameraman Gabriel Figueroa. Fifteen years later, while working with Jack Arnold on producing a new wave of sci-fi horror pictures at Universal, he recalled that story and the rest is history. Yeah. So let's talk about the cast a bit. Uh, Richard Carlson, who played David Reed, was the lead, of course. He epitomized the 1950s scientist hero character, having starred in Universal's It Came From Outer Space two years earlier. His last name is probably coincidental, but you can see that the Fantastic Four's Reed Richards was based on these type of characters, popular through the early 60s. And actually, I think Carlson would have made a good Mr. Fantastic. True. Yeah. I can see that. More on Mr. Fantastic later in this episode. Julia, later changed to Julie Adams, was Universal's most popular leading lady in the 1950s, appearing in many huge non-horror films, although she is best remembered for her role in Creature. She takes it well, still appearing at horror conventions to this day, even though she's now 90 years old. Mm-hmm. So. But she's held up remarkably well. She's a very attractive lady. Yeah, she's, she's still very pretty, yes. True. Richard Denning, like his fellow Richard Carlson, was another utility sci-fi hero, although here he can be seen as the true villain of the piece, or at the very least, an antagonist. I'm going with that hole. Yeah. <laughs> he retired to Maui in the 60s, but was called upon to play the recurring role of the governor on the entire run of the original Hawaii Five-0. He was married to Universal Scream Queen Evelyn Anchors until her death in 1985. Yeah, Evelyn, Evelyn Anchors, most people know as... Gwen from the Wolfman. Oh, she's you know okay. the she's in lots of Universal monster movies, but the Wolfman's that's her most famous part. Right, right. right. Them, so Sorry. and of course for us since we're all you know Wolfman people, you know. 
Antonio Moreno, who played Carl, was actually a silent leading man whose popularity rivaled Rudolph Valentino. Hmm. I did not know that. So he was like Neil Hamilton that played Gordon on the 1960s Batman. He was a big silent leading man, an early talky leading man, too. So hmm. it's kind of interesting. Nestor Pava, who played Lucas, had an eclectic career playing many ethnic types, but he has some more geek cred doing several voices on the original 60s run of Johnny Quest. He also appeared in one of my favorite episodes of the Andy Griffith Show titled The Haunted House, where he played a moonshiner trying to scare people away from his hidden still. This inspired the later Don Knotts film, The Ghost and Mr. Chicken, and the formula of which I think pretty much had to inspire Scooby-Doo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Julie Adams also stopped by Mayberry for a memorable role as a nurse on an episode. There you so. go. Bissell's geek cred roles are too numerous to mention. He probably has an honorary science degree from somewhere, having played heroic, supportive, and sometimes mad doctors for years and years. Perhaps best known as the mad scientist who turned Michael Landon, Farrell, and I Was a Teenage Werewolf, and a regular on the Time Tunnel. He even appeared on an episode of The Incredible Hulk. Director Jack Arnold can be seen as the James Whale of 1950s sci-fi, also directing Revenge of the Creature, It Came from Outer Space, Tarantula, Monster on the Campus, which we watched this weekend on Spinguli, by the way, and The Incredible Shrinking Man. Like many of his peers, he eventually landed in television, directing episodes of just about every show you can think of through the 1970s, including one episode of Wonder Woman and 26 episodes of Gilligan's Island. I wonder why the creature never showed up there. Yeah, true. <laughs> you know, there was a lagoon and all. <laughs> uh, we talked about the opening narration, the science, you know, but, it, you know, it kind of helps give credence to the idea of a gill man. So right. it kind of opens your mind to the idea of it. So, so you know, it works. Um, I think the fossil hand is really cool. It's really done. It, it, it Well done. It looks legitimate. Uh, and I, we did not see this, but my understanding is that it showed up in a troubled Hollywood blockbuster this summer. So, you know. Um. Yeah, yeah the, the one universal, you know, connected movie that come out this summer, it showed up in that. Uh. That's my understanding. And I probably, I know I just gave it away, but I didn't want to say it just in case somebody was going to say, you spoiled it for me. So, uh, but I don't think anybody's really that worried about that, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> and when the live creature's hand comes up on the bank, you get the first instance of the creature musical sting. You know, da, 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 you know that just over yeah. and over again, which is played every time he shows up on screen. Yeah. Every time he shows up on screen. This unforgettable bit of music is attributed to Hans Salter, but other music in the film comes from Herman Stein and even a young Henry Mancini as well as the Universal Library. So you do hear some Wolfman music in this, for instance. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, if, if Evelyn Anchors was visiting Richard Denning on the set, she probably started flipping out when she heard the Wolfman. <laughs> oh, crap, I'm going to die. Probably more because she doesn't like, didn't like Lon Chaney Jr. They hated one another. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he called her Shankers, and she called him the Mad Ghoul, apparently. Nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One thing that makes this movie work so well, like I said, it's very tight in its pacing. That scene where Carl meets David and they come back in the boat tells us everything we need to know about their past together, how David and Kay are too busy with their careers to get married, and how Mark is more interested in funding than in science. This is the foundation of the story, and it's told very well, 
at a fast clip. Right. And I mean, it gives you everything you need to know. Very, it's very economical, you know. I, I, I think that, if, you know, watching it this time, I paid more. Of course, when you do stuff for a podcast, you pay more attention. Uh, and, and Richard Carlson really sells his enthusiasm for science really well. He's nearly chopping at the bit when they're they're going to talk. They're talking about maybe going on the expedition. I mean, he's he's like a like a like a puppy dog over the corner, just like oh oh yeah yeah yeah. You know, like, <laughs> he has several moments like that in the film. A lot of these lead actors in sci-fi movies of the time are very wooden, you know. But you know, we have some very like I said, very well fleshed out leads here. There's something about Richard Dennings in this movie, even though he's Kind of a jerk in this film. Something about him makes me think of Alan Scott in the James Robinson, Paul Smith miniseries, The Golden Age. Right. You know, remember that? Because throughout, through most of it, he's just Alan Scott. He's running the broadcasting company. Mm -hmm. And at the end, he finally shows up as Green Lantern and stuff. And it's just something about that guy. He would make a good Alan Scott back then. You know, an older Alan Scott. I just, I got that stuck in my head and I can't get it out. I had to put it in the podcast. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, when the creature attacks Carl's men at the camp, that's pretty brutal. Oh, gosh. For the yeah. time. I mean, it. you know, it, it's it's really, you know, the especially one of the guy going, no, 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 as he comes out and he, this giant hand just like yeah. envelops his, his face. Head, head, and you're like, oh, crud. You just kind of see his body like go over and then it cuts away to the tent, you know, and you it, it's most of it's off screen, but it, you just get the idea that he's just like snapping their necks and yeah. just, I mean, it's like, Ooh, it's, uh, and when they come up on it later, you're just like, Oh yeah. And there's that one, somebody's hand sticking up like rigor mortis is just setting in. And yeah. Like, Ooh. The above water scenes were all shot at universal studios while the underwater action was filmed at Wakula Springs, Florida. It was there that the producers met Rico Browning who drove them to the Springs and did some test footage for their cameras just to show how the swimming shots would work in 3D. Browning later got a call to come play the creature, a part he would play in all three of the creature films. Now, Browning later went on to produce the film and TV show Flipper and help coordinate the underwater scenes in the James Bond film Thunderball. Like Julie Adams, he's still a regular guest at conventions today. So, and in fact, Ben Chapman was up until his death just a few years ago, too. And speaking of Ben Chapman, uh, there they were since there were two units, uh, Ben Chapman, who was an ex-Marine and a Universal contract player, he played the creature in all the shots on land with the leads and in shallow water at Universal on the back lot with the tank and everything. Right, right, right. He was five inches taller than Browning, so there are some differences in the number of plates on the creature's chest between the two costumes. But you'd have to almost... Them side so, by side. Yeah, to make the difference. Though. Right. And some people, there's different different stories that claim that the creature, Browning's creature costume was uh, lighter green, or some people say even yellow, so it would show up lighter underwater. Oh, yeah. And it does seem to be lighter, but there's other people that have said, no, that's not true. There's actually a, quite a bit of controversy over what the creature in color really looked like, because... There's photos like from Life magazine that that show the creature in uh, in color, and then there's other promotional stills that show him in color. And some he seems to have like really bright red lips and yeah. and like red colored patches under his uh, on the underside of his 
claws. Right. But now Julie Adams said he wasn't really that bright, and he's, he didn't he didn't have like the red lipstick and all that stuff. But now there's other photos that have showed up that so it's kind of it's one of those. Well, what you know, what did he? I wish there was like video of it instead right. of just because you know back then they used to color tint photos and and mess with the color and things. So it's kind of hard to say. I just, it's you know it's not like that little bit of footage we have of Karloff right. in the actual home movie in the green makeup that shows us okay that's what the Frankenstein monster really looked like. like right yeah I wish I wish we had something because so that's why he's open for debate how toys and models and things look you know how green is he what color green is he and does he have the red lips and all that stuff. The tension on the boat between all the players is established very early, even before the creature shows himself. Oh, yeah. I mean, Mark is obsessed with a win and doubts what Carl has gotten him into with the rickety accommodations and somewhat colorful captain. So, Why, you find anything better than this barge? Well, I guess not many ships want to go upriver as far as we're going. We didn't exactly expect to get the Ile de France either. You don't like the reef, huh? What the doctor meant, Lucas. I know what the doctor means. But what for I need a sweet-smelling boat to carry fish on this crazy river? Uh, how do you like the best cabin on the Rita, Miss Lawrence? I love it. Good. <laughs> well, now we have a lab such as it is. Well, let's hope we have some use for it. Well, I'll be disappointed if we don't. Assuming, of course, that Dr. Maya's facts are well-founded. Dr. Maya's a scientist, not a fortune teller. How can he guarantee anything? Well, it seems to me a scientist has need for both uh, vision and confidence. I didn't mean it as any personal criticism, Doctor. It's just that I always look forward to success. I mean, right from the... You know, like, these guys were probably going to get at each other's throats even without a creature oh, coming yeah. after them. <laughs> and you're just like, wow. And he's like, I'm the boss. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Now, you didn't like him, did you? No. <laughs> no. What happens to him, it, I kind of clap a little <laughs> I didn't think I didn't think the guy was that. I mean, as as antagonists in, in movies go, he wasn't like over the top. He never tried to like, you know, kill anybody or you know or, or. I think part of that is because you know when you know at different workplaces you have you have this boss that it doesn't matter what you say, what they say goes, and I think that's for every employee everywhere that's ever had a boss like that. You're like. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's just my, a little bit of my sadistic side. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> well, okay, you can hit me, but we're going to have to just get this out of the way. Julie Adams is gorgeous. Oh, no, I completely agree. Even in a pair of shorts and a ball cap, she's just, I mean, just beautiful. Uh-huh. I can see where Derek and Cook of Monster Kid Radio gets calling her his 50s girlfriend. <laughs> and his wife, Brenda, is fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> and he has met and interviewed her, so... Oh, yeah, uh, you won't get hit for that. Okay, good. This so. mo- this this movie <laughs> That's just showing good taste. That is good taste. Yeah, this movie, by the way, is Derek's favorite film of all time, and I hope we're doing it justice for you, Derek. And thanks for playing the trailer, by the way, for House Frankenstein. Uh, you know, the creature gets that he instantly makes a grab for Julie Adams while she's just standing there along the beach at the very beginning. He it's didn't. Like, yeah. He didn't even get a good look at her, and he's like, "Whoa, hey." <laughs> Give me some of that. <laughs> Christopher. <laughs> now, we only see David and Kay kiss once, and man, Mark looks like he could have just shot David right in the back with that harpoon gun when he sees it. I know. I'm like, whoosh. 
And see that, I mean, that to me, that, but that does say a lot about Mark's character because they are engaged. Yeah. Or we're told they're engaged in all the material. What's like I said, I don't think they ever say it in the movie. But here he is, you know, he's like getting upset because, you know, get over it, dude. They're engaged. You yeah. know, it's like he's not the type to. Well, he wants the win. He wants the win. He wants the win. Yeah. He, like I said, he wants her not only because she's gorgeous, but because she's brilliant and can help his career. Right. Yeah. The underwater scenes could be a bit long since they were definitely filmed with 3D spectacle in mind. But they are shot so well, and there's enough movement to keep our interest even without the 3D glasses. Plus, we just know we're going to see the creature at some point, and then the music helps make these sequences work, since there's obviously no dialogue underwater. So. Right, right, right. I'm guessing that's not Carlson and Denning underwater, since all the Florida shots were filmed by the second unit, but I couldn't find any credits for their swimming doubles, so I would list them if I could, but I can't, so... And then we get to the most iconic scene of the movie, Julie Adams in her white swimsuit and mm -hmm. Kay's underwater ballet with her unknown dance partner. But like you said, you had a few issues with that, right? That you know that she Well, I mean just craziness. I mean, here you have this whole crew, the the two guys went into the water, they both had knives on them, one of them has a spear gun, and they're together, so mm -hmm. you got the buddy system. In the Amazon, where they've been told there's all kinds of critters and everything else in there. <laughs> and she waits until, you know, she goes in. And number two, why on earth did, she, why didn't somebody say, well, why do you got your swimsuit on? Well, you know, what's the deal? <laughs> you she came swim? up there on deck while they were getting ready in her swimsuit with her cute little cover-up. And I mean, granted, awesome outfit. I'm all for that. <laughs> but, I mean, that just shows that... That is just stupid. And I know they did it to set it up. I right. get that. Right. But at the same moment. Yeah. It it does it does make you like wonder she seems pretty cautious otherwise in this yes. movie. It's the one time she's not and she just I mean she does kinda got that little look on her face like, I'm gonna take a swim and she's got that kind well, of Well and she looks to make sure she's not being watched. Yeah. And I'm like Yeah. What? Yeah, you know, you think, you know, she, she could have at least asked one of the boat hands to keep an eye out for stuff while she was out taking a swim but you know but i don't think the the men were you know they were too interested in in uh well the captain is the one who comes up on that hey you're too far out come back here yeah yeah they were too interested in the rocks they found and they you know and as far as asking why do you have a bathing suit on nobody was going to complain <laughs> and now you're going to hit me for that yes <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, Ginger Stanley actually did the swimming with Rico Browning uh, that was shot down in Florida. She was the stand-in for Julie Adams as Kay. Uh, so, when you see the creature interacting with 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 Kay, he's really not re interacting with Julie Adams. He's interacting with this uh, Ginger Stanley. But this is a really good showcase. We've already seen the creature Oh, and here's around. the other thing about sw the underwater swimming. I'm sorry. What? But you think about how, what was in that water, she opens her eyes underwater where the guys have the scuba mask on there. Mm. And I mean, yeah. that water was, you know, Amazon ew, water. I yeah. mean, <laughs> Might have had parasites and, and everything yeah. else. And she, op remember she opened her eyes to look. Yeah. And I'm like, 
Ew. <laughs> I mean, the guys at least had the scuba mask. Yeah, because she goes did. under to look, see, because she feels when he grabs for her foot, she feels something. And she goes, he's already left, but she... Goes under yeah. and looks, and when she's doing the circles and stuff with her feet, she's doing that, too. Yeah. You know, when she's doing the circles in there. Yeah. And I'm like, oh. but anyway, sorry. I had to put that in there. No, that's okay. I was just going to say that, you know, this is really a good showcase for how Rico Browning was able to manipulate that suit and swim in that suit in a way that that really sells it. I mean, he really, you know, I, I mean... He is probably one of the best special effects in the movie just because of the way he could swim. Right. And he hold- looks like a creature swimming, not a man swimming. Right. And, and you know, just like Christopher Reeve was like a, an extra special effect for Superman, the Superman films, because he knew how to fly and move his body and be aerodynamic. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, Rico Browning's much like that under the water. So uh, a lot of film historians have picked that. The the water underwater ballet scene apart, saying it's symbolic of a sex act between the two. I think there is some sexual connotation there for sure, but it's not like they beat you over the head with it. No, I mean it's more like you know, and it's not as the act. It's more of to me of a flirtation. Yeah, it's like it's a, not the act in, of itself. Which they said that. Oh, that's what it, I'm like. No, <laughs> you're dirty minded. Yeah, it's a, it's a flirt. You know. Yeah, it's it's a it's it's. Awaken something in the creature, like you get the idea, which, which he probably hasn't seen the female species of his size, right? Know, it's like which makes size. you wonder where, how, where did he come from? But where, you don't know about his longevity. Well, that's true. That's true too. Yeah, he might have been alive for thousands of years or millions of years or something. That's true. Yeah, you don't. You really don't know. I do know that when uh, AHI made their as as our Camway made their. Uh, Universal Monster action figures or Mego style action figures in the 70s. Um, they had two different versions of the creature, one that looked very much like the Aurora model kit and then one that has a very slim waist and a smaller head and it's got big hips. So people have said that's the female creature. So that the collectors called the the Aurora model kit looking one the male creature and the 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 hippie one the female creature. <laughs> well, let's talk about the creature and the fossil, because we didn't talk about that. Okay. When they found the fossil, it made me think about how far methodology has come. Because you think about that. When they found this hand, he had no problems, you know, just banging away at it as a chisel and just breaking it off. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, and I'm just like, you're disturbing everything around it. And then they go back, and they're like, Oh, it's eight days. We haven't found anything. This is a bust. And I'm like, do you not realize that a true archaeological dig would be meticulous? And they would be using little paintbrush-style brushes. And then, you know, the amount of area that they covered would take months or year before they did that. And they're like, oh, eight days. We didn't find anything. It's a bust. They're smoking around it. Tom's yeah, got his pipe. Yeah, you've got yeah. all these toxicity things yeah. going on. I'm like... <laughs> I mean, as somebody that has a degree in history, and I mean, granted, n- nothing with archaeology or everything else, but talking about how you handle historic materials, I'm just going, oh my God, please stop, and you're handling it with your bare hands. Don't let these people handle your comic books, folks. That's just all I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, but seriously, I mean, yeah, you know, I know handle you it with your bare hands, and I'm just like, oh, but this is what was common. This is why... We lost so much, for instance, when Tutankhamun's tomb, King Tut's tomb, was uncovered because the methodology behind them unsealing that, they didn't take 
you know, as many pictures as they should have. They went through and did it real quick. That is what would have happened at that time period. Right, yeah. And that's also one of the reasons why that doesn't happen today. That's also a reason why all them people got cursed. Dude. Yeah, just true. <laughs> true. But I'm sorry. I had to go. No, I mean, I'm okay. just like, oh. Uh, David, now David does get on Kay for swimming in, in the dangerous waters. He does when she comes up. So it's acknowledged that it wasn't very bright. So it, at least within story, it's acknowledged that. Because you even said it when Roger, like, ah, you know, because yeah. you were like, that's just crazy while we were watching it, you know, and well, we've seen it before, but yeah. Well, like you said, I paid more attention because so we weren't going right. to talk about it. Anyway. Right. Now, they, of course, the creature gets caught in the net and gets out and then they, they find one of his claws. Right. I don't think he's missing the claw later. He might be, but, or maybe he grows it back real quick. I don't know. Maybe Well, maybe he's like a salamander. Yeah. I, yeah, there you go. <laughs> now, Danny, our daughter, watched this with us, and she couldn't get over the giant underwater camera that David carried. <laughs> she was. She's like, "What?" It's the size of a of a of a microwave, you know, yeah, so yeah. basically. She's like, "Oh my gosh!" I'm like, "Well, honey, that's what it was." She's like, "Well, we got you get a little camera, and it'll work." And just yeah, I know. Yeah, when Mark first harpoons the creature, it looks like it hits him in the front abdomen, but then it cuts to another shot, and it's in his back. Yeah. But I wonder if they didn't use the same shot for later when he does get shot in, yeah. in the front. And they just are a different take of that same, same shot. Same shot, yeah. yeah. Uh, Browning really seems to dive deep in long, continuous shots. He was said to be able to hold his breath for a long period of time. Although stories have exaggerated this to four or five minutes at a time, which he has said, I can't couldn't hold it that long. I could hold it for a long time, but not that long. He had four men nearby with an air hose for him. Because they didn't want to build any kind of tank into the suit. And add to the bulk. And they also didn't want bubbles coming out of it. Right. They found they couldn't even use goggles because it just didn't look right under the mask. So his mask eyes were open, too. So, yeah. I mean, it's amazing that he did what he did underwater in those conditions. To get the gliding, shuffling effect that Jack Arnold wanted, flattened weights were added to Ben Chapman's creature boots, like when you see him walking across the boat when he leaves oh, the, yeah. the print. So, yeah. <laughs> So, imagine being in the heat uh, oh. in, in California filming that. And, and then, of course, Rico Browning's in the heat down. And, of course, he didn't have the weights in his feet or he'd sunk straight to the bottom. Yeah, uh, true. You know, but uh, those poor guys, what they – and they didn't get credit, which is just – I guess that was one of those things where they didn't want to say who the creature was because it was such a – you know, the creature was the cre- – Hollywood used to like to do that stuff, you know. Right. But they used to at least, like – like they didn't give Karloff credit at the beginning of, of the original Frankenstein. They didn't give um, uh, Elsa Lanchester credit as the bride. They gave her credit as Mary Shelley. Shelley, right? Uh, you know they used to, and they didn't give Kirk Allen credit as Superman. They gave him credit as Clark Kent. They said Superman played himself, which <laughs> you know kinda, I, that was just a you know, cheeky way they did things. Yeah, kind of tongue in cheek. Yeah, but yeah, it's pointed out in the back of the Black Lagoon documentary on the DVD Blu-ray. That the scene with Kay flicking her cigarette into the lagoon and the reaction shot of the creature, and then all the dead fish on the water surface after the rodent was thrown in there, right. was an early ecological statement in films. Uh, apparently, Rico Browning actually suggested the shot of the creature reacting to Kay's littering. So, so there's another thing. I mean, they're down there. They're scientists, but here they are. They're killing all the fish. Right. They're right. they're throwing cigarettes in the water. But do you? But do you think? You know, that retinol, did they kill it or did they just stun them? Stun them, paralyze them. They might. They might not be dead. They might be fine later. 
They so, might. you know, because remember... But if they lay they up did, on the surface that long, they're going to die. You know, I mean... Well, but they're still in water. Well, they're still in water, yeah. Because remember, they used the powder first, and that wasn't enough. And so then they went back and used the... the like a bath bombs. Yeah, they made like a <laughs> big know? tablet that... Yeah. Yeah. I, Danny called them bath bombs. Well, yeah. Say <laughs> it, it works. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the nighttime scene is very nice and moody. Lots of deep shadows. It's kind of amazing to think this is the only real nighttime appearance of the creature in this film. Uh, you know, it, it's it's got the very atmospheric, you know, universal look to it. Uh, speaking of which, Universal monsters just don't like fire, do they? No. Yeah. No. The, fire bad. Yeah. <laughs> the creature freaks <laughs> over the lantern and is later burned by one. And in the final film, the creature walks among us. He gets burned really bad. That's all I'm going to say about that. So when Z attacks the creature with the machete, uh, this is according to IMDb, which you know sometimes you got to take that stuff with a grain of salt. Apparently, there were several mishaps that happened. The IMDb story says that Chapman had a hard time seeing through the masks, so he was unable to stop the actor playing Z's arm before the machete connected with the mask, and it stuck in the foam rubber. <laughs> Gosh. Now, luckily, it wasn't very sharp, and why in the world he had a real machete and not a prop one, I don't know, but, you know, that's the story. Not sure if that's true. Originally, the Gill Man was apparently going to throw Z into the camera for a big 3D effect, but they couldn't get the wire rigging to work right, so Arnold just had the creature strangle him. Oh, <laughs> so, you know, why not? The shots of the creature in the cage are pretty eerie. You can really get a good look at how well the mask is done. The inside of his mouth really does look like a fish oh, with does. all the well, rings. And, the rings of teeth. Yeah, and, you know, and tissue and stuff. You know, Having pulled many hooks out of fish's mouth going fishing over right. the years and throwing them back. I, it, it, uh, yeah, it, it's pretty accurate. During, you know, Kay and Thompson have their little discussion where he tries to psychoanalyze her situation and then the creature escapes. And at first, I think you and me talked about this. Yes, at we did. At first, I thought Kay threw the lantern at the creature off screen when it was attacking Thompson. Right. But on another viewing this time, when I was doing the notes, he had a lantern in his hand when he attacked him. He was trying to ward him off. I thought he dropped it, but no, he still had it in his hand, and his arm went over the edge of the boat. And it's you know it's far away where you can see enough. His arms off the out of the shot. And he's like, you know, got his hands all around his head, you know, tearing his face up, basically. And then it cuts to a super close-up of the creature, and instantly his head, you know, you see the lantern come in, and right. boom, his head catches on fire. So that was not Kay that did it. It was Thompson, which I kind of hate. I wish it had been I Kay. wish it had been Kay. Added, it would have yeah. gave her something else to do. It would have shown that she, you know, helped save him from being killed. You know, it gave her a little more agency there. So, but... Which, it, it, yeah, it wasn't. It was him, I think. But poor Whit Bissell is laid up for the rest of the film. He has to deal with being in bandages in the middle of a fist fight between Mark and David and another attempted creature, creature attack. attack. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did love it when Lucas pulls the knife on Mark. You know, he might seem like the jovial type, but you got to figure this guy has made a living. Fishing on the Amazon. Amazon. And, I mean, you ain't going to push him. No. And he's like, you're going to do it. You're going to. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> I am the captain. Yeah, you know, so, uh, yeah that's. I, I like the Lucas character. He, mm -hmm. he, he kind of reminds me, this is really crazy, but he, just his, his, not his voice, but 
his face, he reminds, and he's, I think it's because he's got big bushy eyebrows and he's got, you know, that salt and pepper beard going on. He reminds me of like a Hispanic older Sean Connery. <laughs> I think you're smoking your toast. <laughs> There's something about him that just does. It makes me think of him. I don't know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> smoking your toes, but okay. The creature traps the boat in the lagoon. They know they're dealing with an intelligent creature. Uh, yes, because he made it a dam. He wanted, didn't want him to get away. <clears throat> this is where the tension really mirrors Jaws. And as much as I love Jaws, you can kind of buy a fantasy fish man being a stalker better than a real-life great white. You know, because they went over into the realm of fantasy. It's not a real living creature that we know, you know. Right. And, and I forgot to mention in the synopsis, he tears up the rowboat. It's wrecked, yes. so they can't take the rowboat out either. So they got no way out unless they just try to swim or something. Then, then where are they going to go, you know? So, I mean, on the one hand, you can say that the creature is just defending his lagoon and everything else. But where he attacked the guys when they were just there. Yeah. You know, that if it wasn't for that. Yeah. You know, that's the part, and I was going to bring that so up you later. Can't make, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. So you can't make the case that the, you know, that he is a completely sympathetic creature. You know, just defending his turf because of that initial action. Right. That's I was, I had that in my notes for later, but we might as well go ahead and talk about it because, yeah, that's exactly right. That's what that was the point I was going to make. Is like you know they, the point is at the end, you know, the the let him go. You know, we intruded on his territory, but really. And yes, the Carl's expedition had, but they weren't in the water. No. They were up on the land, and they did not provoke him at all, those men that he killed. No. And them being there might have, you know, scared him enough that he did it, but he, yeah, that act there kind of makes it a lot less, like you said, it makes his actions less defendable. Yes. You know, so yeah, that that's an interesting wrinkle, yeah. Uh, Jack Arnold said he really wanted to establish that fear of what, what might lurk under the water, you uh -huh. know, with them. And, I mean, that's the whole point of Jaws. Yep. So I think this movie, I think Jaws, the book, which then, of course, was made into the movie, owes, I don't I, I don't know that, but it just feels like it has to owe something to this, to this movie. Well, like I said, when, you know, Mark hits the creature uh, in the front abdomen this time, I, and it stays in his front abdomen until he pulls it out. I think that was, you know, it was an alternate shot of this that was used earlier. So the battle between Mark and the creature is really nicely done, especially when you consider Browning was doing all of this with no air tank right. and all that and it exertion. Right, like one shot. Yeah, lots of, lots of long shots. And this is where this, I mean, this film really does benefit greatly from being filmed in an actual body of water like a lagoon and that that springs down in yes. florida because there's all these there's all this plant life there's dirt i mean the, he constantly the creature's constantly swimming low along the 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 bottom the floor of the lagoon right right and it's stirring up all this dirt and there's all this seaweed that he can hide amongst and swim amongst and all the motion of that just adds to the dynamic feel of it. Right. And you see fish, you know, swimming in the background. I mean, it's, I mean, it's really not fake. I mean, that's why it looks so good. I mean, yeah, the creature is a guy in a suit. But beyond that, all that's really happening in the camera. Exactly. And that's why it works so well. He's not in a tank. And, I mean, yeah, of course, they're in a tank in the Universal Backlot in the, in the boat. The main actors are. 
but the action underwater is not taking place in a tank where they just dump some dirt in it and a couple here random plants and say, right. oh, there we go, and let's just keep filming that same thing over and over. Now, they, I mean, it, it really, they went into a lagoon and shot, you know, so it, it looks great. So were they filming outside of the lagoon, or did they have the camera within the water with him? They had the camera in the water. They used underwater cameras to film it, yeah. This was the first time that I noticed that the creature rips Mark's tube, his air hose, out with his mouth when they're fighting. I mean, you can actually see it. You know, I had never noticed that before. I just kind of, I don't know what I thought happened, but I mean, you, I really, I'm like, well, how did I not notice that? But I mean, it's very obvious that he's mm. like, because it shows it in his mouth. I mean, that's like, damn, you know, it's like. And he figured out that that's how they were breathing. You think about that. That's yeah. another indication of his intelligence because he's like, that's how they're breathing underwater like me. Yeah. 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 So it does seem weird, though that there's a shot where the creature goes right past David and you know, he swims he like swims right past him he's got the spear gun on him he doesn't fire and he fires at him after he's already taken it off away from him so i don't know if that was just uh, some you know character commentary that he really doesn't want to hurt him right or it was just kind of a not great a great editing bit right there. I don't, I don't know, but I noticed that. It's like, well, why didn't he shoot him? He's right. Cause he, you know, he's, he was tearing the hell out of his, you know, colleague, whether or not he, you know, considered him a friend or not. He well, didn't he figured, Hey, he took care of my job for me. <laughs> Instead of me taking him out behind the bar, you know, let the creature take care of it. Well, that love triangle is now just two sided. That's so. right. Uh, but you know, of course they get the, they, they finally get the, the, the winch on the logs and get it out of the way, but the creature might be dope, but he's getting him a woman. Mm -hmm. You know, they might have doped him up, but you know, he's, he's coming after him. Uh, the scene with him stalking toward K on the boat gives us the best shots we have of the suit and how the gills and mouth work. Thanks to the air bladders that they had in them. That's yeah. really effective. And I mean, the way he's, his, um, the underneath of his, like the gurgle basically of his yeah. throat, like sucking in air and his fins are moving. It's really just really well done. It's it's complete. And you think about that. That was in '54. And we got, I got 53, to bring, 54, depending you know depending on filming. I got to bring this up because I mentioned that Jack Arnold directed uh, Creature on the Campus. Yes. 1958. Not a bad sci-fi horror movie. No, no. Uh, you know, Universal movie. The end of that, you don't see the monster until the end of the movie. It was such a letdown, the makeup effects on that monster. Oh, it was awful. It looked like somebody went and bought a Halloween mask. A cheap one. A cheap Halloween mask and, you know, and, and maybe doctored it up with a little extra fur and that's about it. I mean, four years after this and how effective this was, they made that and the transformation sequences were okay. It, the, the last one was okay, but it it wasn't nearly as good as any of Lon Chaney's no, transformations no, 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 no. from Which was years from before. decades earlier. From you know, uh, it, it amazed me how bad that looked. I mean, the budget of that thing must have been ten dollars. Nothing. I mean, it just I was disappointed. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is this is what you this and that was one of the last Universal horror movies made during the you know the not you know almost unending continuous line up through the early 60s 
that was like the one of the last ones, and it, it, no wonder it was bad. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I, I hate to be. I mean, from this to that. Whoa! But anyway, the there's a lot of stories built around the fact that Chapman accidentally banged Julie Adams' head into the cave wall. Now it wasn't a real cave; it was you know paper mache or whatever you know whatever they make the yeah the fake caves out of. There are publicity shots of her getting treated with the actors around her, but it was apparently only a minor minor bump. They put some makeup on it. It didn't require stitches. There's all these stories that she had to have stitches, and you know, unless she did not doesn't have a scar, you know, obviously. But you know, she did get you know he she had her eyes closed because she was supposed to be unconscious. He couldn't see in that thing. Right, and, and it's a narrow passage. It's a narrow passageway. Yeah, it's like why they were bound to get walked. Yeah. Now, there is one scene that I think is the biggest, hey, it's 3D, and that's when the bat comes flying at David in the cave. That was a little, you know. Yeah. Plus, it's your typical, you know, Hollywood. It's not a rubber bat. It looks better than that. But, you know, it's it's yeah, it's not as, uh, in, in the uh, um, uh, Vincent Price movie, House of Wax, that's in 3D, there's this one scene where a guy outside the wax museum is, like, actually doing a paddle ball thing, and he's like, coming right at the camera and it's like he's talking to the audience and it's like come it takes you out of the movie for a minute i bet you it was cool in 3d yeah. but now it's like okay yeah, <laughs> yeah i guess creech was just getting refreshed in that pool you know trying to get you know get rid of his hangover from the road and all yeah i guess i don't know <laughs> well it might be one of those things he's like aquaman he's got to return to the water every hour there you go maybe there rob that's for you honey there you go there you go uh, I tell you what, he's one tough bastard because he takes two spears, a knife to the chest, and multiple point blank bullet wounds, and he still stays on foot. Uh huh. I mean, whoa! That's <laughs> just. But like we said, I like the fact that despite their losses, David still doesn't seek revenge against the creature. He tells Lucas and Carl to cease fire, and he lets him go off to die, or maybe not. You know, whatever. Whatever, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He, I think he thinks he's going to die, but, you know, and, and the fact that his ethics stay intact mm -hmm. really helps sell the picture and does give the over the movie an overall ecological bent that I think does help it, you know, right. help it sustain in modern times, you know, it, it, it works well. And, and Julie Adams has stated that the compassionate angle was something she was really fond of. And, you know, at first when they, she was a contract player, which meant, you know, basically they could tell you, you're in this movie, you uh -huh. know. And, you know, she had been in some, you know, legitimate uh, non-horror movies with some big names and stuff. And they said, you know, next movie is Creature from the Black Lagoon. She's like, Creature from what? You know? Right. So, and, you know, and she read it and she thought, oh, well, this, you know, because at first she thought, oh, God, some of these horror movies, movies. are bad, you know. But you know, she was like, "Oh, hey, this is this is actually a really good story, and it's got a nice message." And 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 she had a good time making it. And she, you know, she she does say, you know, I made all these other movies, but all anybody wants to talk about is Creature, but that's okay. You know, yeah. she, she does mention that, you know, hey, I did all this other stuff, but okay, that's what you guys want to talk about, you know. It's, you know. <laughs> but I mean, heck, if you get one movie like that in a lifetime, right? That's 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 pretty good. So. You know, we talked about, you know, you could argue that, that Mark's attack made the creature violent, but then again, you've mm -mm. got that first attack that he did, so yeah. You know, unfortunately, the compassion of David and Kay would not be felt in the first sequel, 
where the creature is captured and turned into an exhibit at a SeaWorld-like park where he is conditioned with an electronic cattle prod while chained to the tank floor. Now, if you don't understand why he goes berserk and starts tearing shit up when he gets loose, then there ain't no hope for you. Cause, I, mean, I mean, you know. They got what's coming to him in that movie. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> see, I mean, that was the thing. I mean, I'd like to see what David thought of how they were treating him. Right, you know? right, because... The only two actors that returned in the second movie, Revenge of the Creature, were Rico Browning, who played the underwater creature again, and Nestor uh, Pivea, who played Lucas briefly at the beginning. I would have liked to have seen David uh, confront... Even if come at the end. Come at the end and confront... I, I know Derek, Derek and Cook's a big fan of John Agar, who plays the scientist hero in that film, but I don't think David would very much like his methodology with dealing with the creature. Right. I, I think he'd be at odds with him instantaneously, and it would have been interesting to see. Later, it, produced in the same year but released the next year in 1956, they did The Creature Walks Among Us, which is the third movie, with only Rico Browning back for the creature's brief underwater scenes in that film. The creature suffers the worst treatment of all in this one. He's badly burned by scientists searching for him, his outer scales and gills are removed, and a more humanoid being emerges who longs to go back to the water that he can no longer return to. Jack Arnold directed the second film, but not the third one. So, the creature made two official Universal TV appearances. His first, the month before this film's release, on the Colgate Comedy Hour, where Ben Chapman did the duty of every Universal monster and mm -hmm. met Bud Abbott and Lou Costello in a hilarious skit that you can find on YouTube. Just... Just type in Creature from the Black Lagoon, Abbott and Costello, and you'll find it. It's it's pretty good. Also an appearance by the Frankenstein Monster, who I believe is played by Glenn Strange. That's what I was going to say, too. But is in slightly different makeup, and it's almost more like a mask he's got Yeah, on. something. It's yeah, odd. It's not his usual Frankenstein makeup. But, you know, that was six years after he last played the monster in Abbott and Costello made Frankenstein. Ten years later, the creature appeared as Herman Munster's Uncle Gilbert on The Munsters. Nudge, very, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah, very dashing in his overcoat, scarf, and fedora. So when you see the creature in that outfit and you've not seen those Munsters episodes, that's why he's in that outfit. So, mm -hmm. uh, while Universal has never done a creature revival despite threatening to do so for decades, similar sea monsters have plagued theater screens. The creature in The Monster Squad is obviously supposed to be the Gill Man that we see here, but since Universal wasn't involved, they had to steer clear of his design, although I think they came up with a pretty great update, I must say. Okay. It's much more fearsome looking with the teeth in the front, but even though he gets he gets taken out like a chump by Horace pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Horace. <laughs> and one more creature story. 20-plus years ago, oh, I gosh. picked up a creature mask at a local Rite Aid. My friend Greg and I rigged up a nice surprise for his family's annual Halloween hayride. We stuffed a pair of overalls full of balloons and hit him under the platform on their pond. Later that night, while everyone was enjoying a weenie roast, we pulled him across the pond with a fishing pole. We got quite the reaction, that's all I can say. Yeah. <laughs> Good times. We had some good. We had some good. That one time we uh, we threw what was it? We were in the cattle chute and we like threw something out on them. I can't remember what it was when the wagon went by. We threw, oh no! Didn't I, was, I was sick that time. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we we've, we've got some 
we've got some pretty good we we ran like a we'll have to tell that story about the the mini haunted house thing we ran in our backyard that time oh yeah yeah that's a good story yeah that's awesome <laughs> yeah maybe maybe for another episode yeah okay we'll leave the black lagoon and head to the cellar of dusty long boxes in the house of frankenstein after some important promos from our pals it's midnight the podcasting hour hello listeners it's your friend pj frightful that's pj as in podcast jockey and I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The Podcasting Hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and The Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. The Fantastic Arse is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that Taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Thousand men, John. 
We're back, and now we've dug out an old comic from the dusty long box in the house of Franklin Stein. We fended off all the critters, creatures trying to get at us, and dragged it back into the house. For this episode, we are not venturing far from the movie source material, taking a look at Fantastic Four number 97, which was cover dated April 1970, on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, January 13, 1970. The cover by Jack Kirby and inker John Verporten, Shows the FF relaxing in civilian clothes on a beach. Johnny is just burning patterns in the sand. Reed is playing with Franklin while Sue checks the temperature of his milk bottle on her wrist. Ben is sunbathing with a radio nearby. Unbeknownst to the team, a large, scaly, green humanoid monster emerges from the water. The text blurb tells us this is the monster from the Lost Lagoon. So what do you think about this cover? Oh, I... It's not, it doesn't tell you, like most comic book covers, I don't put a lot of stock in what's in the cover because a lot of times the story doesn't match, and this is just going to be another case of that. Okay, yeah. So, you know, that's just one of those cases. Yeah. You know, after gushing about Kirby over on our FW Presents show, which is one reason why I wanted to do this movie and this comic first, because it was just Jack Kirby's 100th birthday, obviously. Right, right, right. I hate to say this isn't the best Jack Kirby cover I've seen. Uh, I'm not sure John Verporten's inks are up to snuff of Joe Sennett, who usually inked Kirby's Fantastic Four stuff. Mm -hmm. And honestly, Kirby was just a few months away from jumping ship to D.C., so maybe his heart just wasn't into it, you know, as much as it had been before. So we'll see how that goes on the inside. The monster from the Lost Lagoon was, quote, Unquote, a Stan Lee, Jack Kirby mystery thriller, which probably means Kirby plotted and drew it and Stan scripted and edited it afterwards. Mm. Embellished by Frank Giacoya, lettered by Sam Rosen. Reed, Johnny, and Ben are out in an experimental Navy Air Sea Cruiser helping the military in their search for a humanoid monster that has been sinking ships in the Lost Lagoon. The Navy recruited the Fantastic Four's help when they heard they were vacationing nearby. Stalker mutt? Suddenly, their ship is rammed by a giant killer whale who shouldn't be in these waters. For an instance, one of them thinks they see a humanoid shape clinging to the whale, but they chalk it up to their imagination. Little did they know they did see a humanoid creature with green scaly skin who swims past their rising ship. Johnny suggests Namor and Triton as possible suspects, but Reed believes Namor would attack them in person, and Triton is their ally and has no motive. The mention of Triton makes Johnny think of another inhuman, his former girlfriend Crystal, and the sullen human torch flies off on his own back to the beach. Johnny's landing creates quite a stir, with many lovely girls fawning over him as he flames off. But Johnny can't get his mind off of Crystal long enough to even consider their advances. 
Donnie finds his sister Sue and nephew Franklin, and soon the family is reunited on the beach when Reed and Ben return. Sue ribs Reed for chasing after monsters, but unbeknownst to the heroes, their monstrous quarry is watching them from behind some nearby rocks. The monster swims to a secret cave where he laments he is being searched for. He comments that he can't be stopped with his work nearly done. He pulls out the final vial of a special liquid he possesses. Drinking it, he turns from creature into a normal, air-breathing man. He takes a secret tunnel up through the tank of a nearby oceanarium, where he poses as one of their fish handlers. He is surprised to find Reed, Ben, and Johnny as spectators, the very men who were searching for him earlier. Trying to ascertain if their search has brought them after him, the man performs his amazing stunts. Reed finds his kinship with the dolphin suspect, but he can't believe this man could be their monster. Johnny and Ben pick on Reed for his one-track mind, but the scientist admits he can't stop thinking about the mystery they've stumbled onto. He had hoped to find a clue at the Oceanarium since it borders the fabled Lost Lagoon. Reed stretches his arm into the water, hoping to find a cave entrance. The disguised monster panics and hurls a pilot whale like a torpedo at the heroes. When Reed asks the man about what happened in the tank, he is silent. But the ever-thinking Reed realizes that this marine expert would make an excellent guide. The secret monster silently agrees to take them, hoping to turn the tables on them on his own turf. Later in the air-sea cruise ship, the mysterious guide takes the Fantastic Three deeper and deeper into the cavernous depths of the Lost Lagoon. Johnny wonders how a human could even know about such things, and Reed is also puzzled. The guide doesn't answer as Ben notices they are heading deeper and deeper into a large bog. The mystery man punches his way out of the ship, ripping it wide open. The ship sinks into the bog as water rushes into the gaping hole. Reed fires a harpoon line into the reef wall, and with little hope of success, the three climb out. Ben knows only he can hold his breath long enough to survive. He grabs his friends, and fearing he won't be able to save them, suddenly surfaces in an underwater cave, complete with air. Ben then hears the approach of padded feet and finally sees the monster they've been looking for. The monster mumbles a language Ben can't understand, so he assumes the worst and goes on the offensive. But the monster fights back and manages to knock the thing off his orange rocky feet. But Ben isn't one to take a punch lightly, and soon he and the evenly matched monster are locked in combat. Just then, Johnny and Reed arrive, with Johnny's flames scaring the amphibian monster off, as Reed suspected it would. The three male Fantastic Four members give chase while wondering if the monster could come from some undersea race with world conquest in mind, something Ben scoffs at despite the number of creatures they've already encountered in their adventures. When they lose sight of their prey, Ben punches his way through the cavern walls where they see an awesome sight, a large crustacean-like ship which seems to have crashed in the cave from above. With the creature loading plastic bags of water into the ship, Reed surmises that the alien creature came from a water-based planet, and having crashed on Earth, he was collecting water for his journey home. He assumed passing ships were hostile, so he passed to protect his precious cargo. Inside, the heroes see that that cargo, a female of the species, the alien's mate. Johnny believes there was no need for him to fight, as mankind would have offered their help, but Reed points out that Ben attacked him without provocation, thanks to lack of communication. The creature motions for them to move backward as his ship prepares to take off. It dives deep into the sea for maximum lift, and our heroes head topside to see the ship lift off. Wondering about their mysterious guide, Reed deduces that with his lack of speech and superhuman strength, 
he and the alien were somehow one and the same. Ben is left wondering if they won or not, but is certain of one thing. If they ever make this into a movie, this will be the perfect spot for a fade out. So what do you think? Oi. <laughs> Oi? <laughs> What's that mean? <laughs> okay. I'm trying to figure out where to start. <laughs> Number one, they're going on vacation, which apparently is not any kind of secret because the government has contacted them to go on this, you know, go on this trip. Mm-hmm. So, all their enemies are now attacking New York. <laughs> well, they got the Avengers there. <laughs> you know, so you got that. And then you've got the fact that, well, we're going to go on vacation, but just like always, Reed is going to go and do his own thing and leave me with the kid all by myself while me, you know, while him and the boys go out, you know, doing whatever. You know, and I'm just like, okay, woman, why did you stay married with him? You should stay, you know, go with Namor, you know, get it over with. <laughs> We've already established, you know, that that is actually her secret desire. Look it up. It's in a comic that she really wanted to be with Namor, but she stayed with him because that way they weren't of the same species. But she probably would have been a whole lot better off and wouldn't have had all this other crap happen to her, you know, and it wouldn't be freaky about the age difference and all that stuff. But, uh, I mean, you've got that going on and, you know, uh, and then you've got, Oh, this man can't talk, but, you know, we're going to hire him to handle fish and be around our fish and everything else, but he can't talk, and he's only been there for a little bit, but, you know, he's good with fish, so, oh, well, we're going to trust him. You know, you've got that at the Oceanarium. Hey, let's take this guy, and we're going to go to the depths of the ocean. He can't talk, and he can't tell us anything, but he's good with fish, so, you know, apparently if you're good with fish, you automatically get trusted. <laughs> I mean, again, oi. <laughs> Good, good points, all. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I, ah. Well, let's 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 explore those points as we go through the story a little bit. I want, and I'm not done. I'll get get to it oh, as we go through. I'm sure you I, this will. This was an oi point. Okay. Okay. Uh, this was clearly inspired by the creature films, perhaps the first two, since we have the Oceanarium as a locale, like the the uh, Revenge of the Creature, and the monster here looks a lot like the unused alien That's creature what I was design. Say. It does. So I wonder if Kirby had seen those stills. Right. You know, I don't know how public they were bef before, but but maybe he had seen them because Kirby was a voracious reader and kept a lot of stuff. That's one reason why he's, there's all those photo collages. He cuts up cut up magazines and made things. So yeah, Kirby was also at this point, like we said, fairly disgruntled at Marvel, and he was tired of creating characters for them that he got no additional compensation for. So he was mining past characters and getting story ideas from TV and film, such as a recent storyline around this time with a planet of gangsters, similar to Star Trek's A Piece of the Action. So, it's a pretty straightforward story. Um, you get Johnny's angst at being separated from Crystal, who had prior to this been an actual fill-in member of the Fantastic Four, complete with uniform while Sue was off on maternity leave. And Sue only gets to play Mommy in, a period, in two pages of this story. I'm just like... <laughs> Fantastic Three. Because, yeah. I mean, if they had had Sue with them, she could have made an invisible shield bubble and gone into the ocean. Right. With them. Yeah, exactly. Ah! <laughs> yeah, and she probably would have also, like, figured out what was going on and, 
and said, "No, wait, what? Don't don't attack him. Just hold on, you know." Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, mm. Some of the people on the beach are actually pretty flippant toward Johnny. You know, when he lands, if I'd seen a guy fly in on fire. I think I would have kept my smart-ass comments to myself. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> there's the one guy that's like, you know, just really, just really super flippant with Johnny. Like, he says, hey, celebrity, what do your friends call you, human or torch? And Johnny says, very funny. I'll bet you're a smash at funerals, you know. And, and, and when he lands, this girl's like, it's the human torch. And the guy says, what else is new? I, you know, it's like. I'm like. And they're on vacation, so they're not where they usually are. No, they're not. It's not like New York where they see them fly around the Baxter building all the time or anything. Yeah. So, yeah. I do have to question just how the creature had a serum to make him look human. If they crash-landed there, then why would he have that? Well, you think about it. He comes from a planet that obviously they don't look like humans. They've only been there for a little bit. He's either remarkably intelligent and just... Hey, I'm gonna make a serum to look like who's going on. You know what's going on around here. Or, uh yeah. Another oi. Yeah. <laughs> Oddly enough, in a few of these panels, he kind of looks a bit like Richard Carlson. So I don't know if that was intentional or just a happy coincidence. But and you know why hide at the Oceanarium? Was he taking supplies from there to help on his journey? The plastic bags or something? Why not just stay in the cave the way you were? You know, I I don't really understand. And, and then, like you said, how did how did he get a job there if he couldn't? Did he just show up and start doing things with the dolphins and things? Were like you're hired. You know, no background yeah. check. No. And, I mean, and again, <laughs> he can't talk. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, uh. Uh, there's some light comedy bits in this story that play pretty well. Johnny says, "Reads one track mind is like a trolley car." Ben, unimpressed with the guide's way with dolphins, asks if he can lift a trunk with an elephant attached, you know. Uh, and the pilot whale blasts Ben with his blowhole, which is kind of funny, you know. But I'm not even sure how they got that the man wanted to play guide for them. It just, this might be one of those things where Jack Kirby wrote it one way and Stan just interpreted it his own way. And that's why there's, because... There's a disconnect. Yeah, because they got, I think at this point, Jack had moved to California okay. by this point. He had moved his family out to California. And so they weren't having their plotting sessions as much as they used to. And I, and like I said, you know, this is just, this is number 97. I think his last issue is, his last full issue is 102. Oh, so right yeah, close. Yeah, this is right, this is right close to when he leaves and goes to D.C. and does all the fourth world stuff. And, I think at this point they weren't communicating a whole lot. So that might be what it makes me wonder if Kirby had a totally different idea of what was going on here and Dan just scripted it the way he, you know, just saw it. It's like, oh, okay, I'll make it say this, you know, and it, and it, you know, (laughs) that might account for some of the disconnect here. So, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure. Uh, Reed gives some Ben some crap for attacking the creature first, but if they figure out he was the guide as well, he did leave them to drown in a bog. Yeah. You know, plus this guy, the monster, I mean, Ben sees him and says, you got to be the monster they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you've been sinking all these ships. Well, 
why wouldn't he attack him? Really, you know, I right. mean, he's their enemy. He's been attacking, you know, he's been terrorizing innocent people and perhaps naval ships and everything. So, you know, I know they're trying to make it sympathetic. Oh, you know, community. It's got a nice story message, but it's kind of it's almost like the creature attacking those guys. Exactly. You know? There's the antecedent. Right. That, you know, that comes before. You attack first. If you first. took this out, then okay, you've got a sympathetic person, sympathetic creature. But when you take out, when you have that in and you're showing that before, that colors the rest of the episode. If they just had the creature, the monster here, just be seen by people and people freak out. Yes. But he never harmed anybody. And then Ben attacked him. You know, that would even be worse because uh, you looked in a mirror lately, Ben? I mean, <laughs> it's like... Yeah, Pot, your name's Kittle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, you, you know, it's another way. It's a, in a lot of ways, it is similar to the creature because you've got that, that initial attack by the creature in each story that kind of takes away some of the sympathy you, you have for Right. Him. Well, yeah. and then you've got Johnny. He's like, I'm a grown man, but I miss my girlfriend. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, yeah. so he's all wrapped up in his own thing. And I'm like, oh, honey. Oh, he acted like he was just the, I mean, just Crystal was the, you know, I mean, he was screwed up for years. And then when her and Quicksilver hooked up and got married, he was really honked off. So, yeah. So, Oy. yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like we said, the message here is not jumping to conclusions and not letting a language barrier make enemies out of each other. And it's a good lesson to remember, even if the guy started the trouble by sinking the ships. But if he was smart enough to go to work in an oceanarium, couldn't he figure out that those ships weren't going to do him any harm anyway? Right. I mean, you know, it's there, there's a lot of disconnect in this, you know. I mean, he had to understand some stuff because, you know, he's working at the oceanarium. He's got to know when his shift starts. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And what about his paycheck? You yeah. Know, where's that going? Yes, that's going buying lots of plastic bags. <laughs> you know. His W four form. I wonder how he filled that out. Uh, Just you know. Yeah. I think this is a you know, it's sorry. A, this is a fine filler issue. It's it's not ever gonna rank as any one of the great Fantastic Four stories. Uh, you know, those were pretty much done by this point. I mean, like I said, you know, the writing was kinda on the wall. Kirby was he was had one foot out the door, and uh, Stan was getting busier with the actual running of the company and stuff. Right. And he was starting to step back from writing as much, and uh, around this time, so you know that the, the era, the the great era of Fantastic Four, had come and gone by this point. But it is a Stanley and Jack Kirby Fantastic Four story. Uh, you know the art; it, it's it's not up to the standards of a lot of the other. Fantastic Four. We we read this in the uh, Essential Fantastic Four Volume Five is what what we read this in, but it's not up to the standard of the art like as inked by Joe Sennon and and probably uh, you know when you see Kirby's pencils here they're much you know tighter. I, I think get, 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 yeah, Frank Gakoya has got more of a loose. Uh, I don't want to say sloppy. It's not sloppy, but it's just more of a loose style, and I just don't think he. He was as, he just wasn't as good of an inker on Kirby as somebody like Joe Sennett or something. I think I think if they had that polished look of the other most of the other Fantastic Four stories from this era, I think it would have helped this one. Mm-hmm. But it it just doesn't. So I mean, it's fun. It just don't think about it a whole lot, and you can have some fun with it. It almost reminds me of more of an episode of like a, a Fantastic Four cartoon 
than oh true than, true than in which they adapted in every Fantastic Four cartoon they have adapted the comics they have one way or the other and some with input from Lee and Kirby and some not and but uh, this this it's because it the logic of several parts of it don't quite sync up it seems more like a cartoon. Because a lot of cartoons, the logic right, doesn't right. add. Kids Saturday morning cartoons, the logic doesn't add up. But there's enough character bits and stuff that's fun in it that that makes it worth reading. But uh, and it was a perfect uh, go-to for for to match up with the creature. Obviously, mm-hmm. probably the best one there is out there to uh, connect to straight back to the creature. I mean, even the the Lost Lagoon. You know, come on, it's super obvious. <laughs> Well, that'll do it for this episode, the first episode in the House of Frankenstein series for this year. Uh, if you want to hear more about the Fantastic Four, you should head over to the Fantastic Cast, which is hosted by our friends Andrew Leyland and Stephen Lacey, and they are up into the 70s now with mm-hmm. the Fantastic Four. So they covered this story like years ago, but by this point, so I think they're up to 75, 6, I've been listening to it, but I can't think what year they're in now, but they're... They're mid-70s now, so they're way beyond this. But uh, great show, as always, so definitely check that out. Check out Monster Kid Radio, like we mentioned before, for all your classic horror film needs. We'll come back in a couple weeks for another classic horror movie and a comic that's connected to it. So stay tuned, and we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises Worldwide. And is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue my mommy and daddy. <laughs> Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for Supermates and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FW Podcast. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. <laughs>
to fame.